Good morning. All sorts of things sort of dash through your mind, uh, well, they do through mine, uh, through every church service. And uh, some of you listen to Paul talk about the extension, maybe thinking, well, I mean, not that many people here today, and some days, you know, we're not that full, and so on, and so on, and so on. Trust me, years of ministry has taught me that uh, the old adage, once a building is 80% full, it is full and becomes a discouragement to people arriving. <laughs> Uh, that is true. And the other factor is simply this. If you make room for people, people come. If you don't, people begin to drift away. It's, it's just the way it works. Um, there's a science involved, which I don't understand, but I've just learned it from experience. Uh, this church needs to grow because the kingdom of God needs to grow because the northeast of England is actually under-churched, not over-churched. I don't mean buildings-wise, I just mean in terms of people. And the harvest field out there is massive. And if we are serious, and I am, about the vision that God has always put in my mind since I first came into ministry, since before I came into ministry, of the day coming when people will stand in line outside all the way up the street there, waiting for a gap to sit down to worship when somebody goes off to have lunch. Either I'm a fool or we actually have a heart that that day will come when people out of hunger will be desperate to come to worship. The other thing, of course, is it's, it's incredibly difficult uh, to stand up and preach uh, after singing a song like that. You know, first time I heard that song, it dissolved me. There's about three or four songs. All my life you have been faithful. All my life. And, you know, Father's Day, whoa, that, that adds the emotion way up there, you know. Blessed with two astonishingly uh, fantastic children and grandchildren. Well, you know, probably God's greatest invention, grandchildren. Uh, just, just amazing. And I, I'm blessed. Blessed beyond imagining. Uh, God's faithfulness, God's goodness. Uh, but just a little aside. I, Rightly, I, I, you know, I had a card yesterday from my son and a text this morning, and uh, I've got a little package down there from, from Rachel and the family, uh, you know, Father's Day, and I've only got two kids, but I had a, a message as well, wishing me happy Father's Day from Tappy, and Tappy is the pastor of a church in Basildon, the town where I used to be, pastor of a different church, Zimbabwean guy, and part of their culture is the, the respect for older men who blessed you. On Father's Day, so he sent me a Father's Day message on Father's Day to thank me for being an example of what a father and grandfather should be. If only he knew. <laughs> now, the other thing which occurs to me, of course, is you then have memories, at least I do, of, of my own father, who uh, was far from perfect, um, Remarkable man. He end of this month he would have been a hundred uh, had he he lived. He died about three years ago. Uh, but a man of God loved the Lord, and I am here as a preacher, as someone with a heart to share with you the gospel of Jesus Christ. Largely because of my parents and, and included in that is my father, who although he loved to argue with me, fathers do that sometimes, don't they? He loved to argue with me, and I loved to argue with him. I learned a huge amount from him. Now, all that is relevant, actually, in terms of what we're going to do with our lives. Um, we've got up to a point in John's gospel 
where it's like John presses the pause button to reflect for a while. Let me read it to you. It's in uh, John chapter 12 and verse 37. When I first read the passage, I thought, wow, why did I get this one to preach on? But bear with me. Uh, John chapter 12, verse 37. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe because as, as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than praise from God. Then Jesus cried out, whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. <clears throat> Excuse me. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person, for I did not come to judge the world but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day, for I did not speak on my own. But the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. First glance, it's, it's quite a hodgepodge. It's quite a sort of jump around of ideas. But let me um, try to put it in the context first of all. John has been telling the story of Jesus. John has been explaining who Jesus was and what his ministry was like. And we need to understand that John was a little bit different to the gospel writers in that he wasn't simply telling a story with a few theological ideas. He was actually making a theological statement, a number of statements, through this, uh, through this book. He was telling the story of Jesus honestly, but all the way through it, he was weaving a kind of reflection of what this meant and what Jesus was achieving and, and what it should mean to us. And in this pause that he presses now, he kind of gives us uh, three responses to Jesus. So far, we've, we've seen since the raising of Lazarus, there have been three, possibly four, distinctly prophetic things that have occurred. Firstly, there were, there were the amazing words of Caiaphas in, in John 11 and uh, verse uh, 49 and 50 when he said this. This is Caiaphas, the high priest. Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. Now, Caiaphas was arguing that they should get rid of Jesus, but he was making a prophetic statement. John, John explains that. He didn't know he was making a prophetic statement, but he was pointing to the fact that Jesus had to die for the nation. That's, that's, I find that fascinating. And then we have a, another prophetic act in Mary anointing Jesus. She anointed him, Jesus said, for his burial. 
She didn't know that she, that that's what she was doing at all. But it was like a prophetic act, and John is reflecting on this as he looks back when he's writing this, this gospel. He's saying, this is being projected, this is being projected, this is being projected. So you have, it's better for one man to die for the nation. Jesus will be buried. And then shortly afterwards, you have the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. When Jesus comes riding a donkey and the, the palms are waved, Hosanna, and the people cry out. It was a kind of messianic chant and the crowd had no real grasp of the salvation that Jesus would bring. They didn't understand that. They just knew that somehow or other he, he was the one, but not in the way that they understood. Again, a prophetic act of the day when Jesus would eventually not just rise from the dead, but be vindicated totally in his return in power and glory when every knee will bow. And of course, that... Uh, that finds its fulfillment in Revelation 7, where you see the multitude in heaven singing the praises of God and waving palm branches and shouting about the salvation, which has happened. It's all prophetic. This is what Jesus is. This is what he's done. This is how it's working. And uh, uh, last week, uh, though I hadn't realized until Betty was sharing with me what, uh, what, what was said last week, in, in the story of the Greeks, coming to say we would see Jesus, you could see a prophetic element there as well, that the gospel was going to be opened out to beyond just the Jews. So you're with me, that's, that's where we've got, and suddenly John goes, whoa. Let's just consider, he says, how people were responding. And there's that stark, stark verse, even after Jesus had performed so many miracles. Even after that, they wouldn't believe in him. Climaxing in context with the raising of Lazarus. Wow! A man dead three days in the tomb, stone rolled back and out he comes. Grave clothes and all. We've got to get rid of this man, he's dangerous. No! Wow, this must be him. This is, hang on, uh, this is dangerous. In fact, elsewhere, the Jewish leaders suggest that he does all these things through the power of, of Satan, of Beelzebub. They can't see, they don't see. And that's the first group. The first group in terms of response to Jesus, the blind, the spiritually blind. Even these miracles, even despite the most of the Jewish leaders would not believe in him. John uses the words of Isaiah to show that God had hardened their hearts. Now, that's difficult for us to grasp. Did they not believe because God didn't like them and made sure they wouldn't? Because that's one way of reading it. Or did God harden their hearts because they wouldn't believe? Uh, and the answer is yes to both. And I don't understand how that works. Uh, lots of stuff about God, I don't understand how it works. I don't understand, for example, how God can say to me, uh, come to me, make the choice of putting your trust in me, which I have done, hallelujah, and then the Bible tells me that God chose me in the first place. Uh, I don't understand that, but both are right. And here we have this, this realization that God was in control, but that people were still responsible for their choices. In Matthew 13, Jesus explains why he spoke in parables. And uh, if, if you read it, read it in verses 10 to, to 17. And Jesus actually said, again, quoting from the Old Testament, 
He spoke in parables in case some people believed. And you go, uh, wasn't that the point anyway? But he's saying something much more profound. Jesus and John are referring to those who have no desire for truth, but only for control. He's referring to those whose focus is on their ability to manage, not to know what is true. God does not open the eyes of those who have no hunger for truth. There's no point. If there's no desire to know what God's doing, why should he bother? The parables and the miracles only help those who wanted to know, only help those who realized they had a need. As Jesus said, it's not the sick who need a doctor. Sorry, it's not the, not the, start again. It's not those who are well who need a doctor, it's the sick, and he was talking about who he'd come for. He'd come for those who recognized their own need. Still the case. We have many around us today, even if they thought that the Christian message had some validity, would deny it in order to protect their own orthodoxy. It can be true in the scientific world. I remember some years ago reading an extract from an article in the Harvard magazine of an uh, evolutionary, evolutionary scientist saying to his colleagues, uh, we have to acknowledge that in the last 20, 30 years, most of the evidence has gone against us, but we must never take any notice of that because the ideal we follow matters too much. You're going, uh, can we turn the scientific world, can we turn the philosophical world? Oh, Lord, deliver us from philosophers. I am one. <laughs> I have to say, I think philosophically all the time. I, I, I reflect on life, I sit in my chair and I weigh this and weigh that. But Lord, deliver us from philosophers who always believe they're right. Who think they have suddenly found the insight into life. The gurus of this world who, uh, I, I passed a, a garden fence, I can't remember where it said, or some little metal plaque, I hadn't seen it before, done the walk many times, something about um, mental something, therapy, something, something. And I thought, right, okay. Now, it may be perfectly legitimate, so if you know this fence, don't think I'm, it may be perfectly legitimate, but there are plenty of people out there who found that the way to make money <laughs> is to set themselves up as some kind of guru who will help you in your need. Tell them the truth of Jesus, and even if they thought there was some seriousness in it, they wouldn't want to know, because they're focused on their own control. It could be true in the political world, and gosh, you could stand here and talk forever on that, couldn't you? It doesn't matter what's going on, it doesn't matter what the values are that should be right, the real thing is to get re-elected or to get elected. This political party is doing something, actually we quite agree with it, because we're the opposition, we'll say we don't, and then do the same thing. And that's not talking about the current situation, that's talking about the political situation right across the last, well, all my lifetime, really. We focus, we focus, we focus on control. And God, God wants us to see truth and hunger for truth and to hunger for him. And if people will not do that, he won't open their eyes. The blind. That's one group. Second group are the fearful. Verses 42 and 43. We, we develop a sort of sympathy here, don't we? The same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they'd be put out of the synagogue. 
for they loved human praise more than praise from God. These others, and there are still many of them around, recognize the Christian message to be true, but are too scared to acknowledge it for whatever reason. Being put out of the synagogue was no sort of, you know, it's not like Andy deciding you're not allowed to come to church anymore. You know, you could say, oh, that's not very nice. And you go out there the rest of the world and life would be unchanged. The synagogue was the center of Jewish identity, was the center of everything that happened in a community. If you were put out of the synagogue, your reputation went down the pan right across the whole community. And if the Jewish leaders turned against you, that's what they'd do. It would affect you financially, it would accept your, abil your ability to trade, and it would have a huge effect on your families. You'd become an object of ridicule. Hmm. Maybe we're not quite so judgmental about them now. Well, I do believe in Jesus, but I, I can't meet that cost. And it's still true that many will hold back from acknowledging their faith because of the likely cost, the cost to their reputation, to their income, to, to influence. Uh, we, we live in a world of, of new orthodoxy. I remember reading about uh, Egypt, for example, where in Egypt, if you're a Christian, you have a little mark on your, on, on your uh, passport or on your identity card and so on, and that prohibits you from certain occupations. And the reason being because you hold an ideology which is different to the state ideology, therefore they don't want you in a dangerous position where you can influence others. So by and large, a few exceptions, the medical world is closed to Christians in Egypt. That's not un unusual in lots of... Uh, fairly fundamental countries where Christians are tolerated, but they can't do certain jobs in case they have influence. So they end up as street cleaners and uh, house cleaners and anything where they have no voice. You know, I'm beginning to see that happening in our land. I never thought it would. But the squeeze to try to get Christian influence out of education, to try to get Christian influence out of the medicine world is, is there for all to see. It's quite amazing. And what if it works? What if that's what happens? What if the cost of following Jesus for you or for me is that certain jobs are closed to us? What if the cost of following Jesus for you or for me means we can't complete our university degree? We're not allowed to anymore. What if the cost of following Jesus is that you have certain jobs that are open to you, the menial jobs that nobody else wants to do? Oh yes, we, we, we love the Christians. As long as they keep their mouths shut as long as they have no influence. See, Jesus always made it clear that there was a great cost in following him. Always. The call to deny ourselves, to take up our cross daily, and to follow him is part of the deal. And there are many today, and I've met a number of them, who acknowledge that the gospel is probably true and even in secret of their own little place have, have put their trust in Jesus but they're not they're not going to come out clean about it because their friends would make life hell for them because the status the influence they've gained in their place of work is such that that would be at risk in Luke chapter 9 verse 26 Jesus said something very profound he said that when he returns he will be ashamed of those who are now ashamed of him. Oh. You ever been ashamed of Jesus? Have you ever thought, oh, I'll just step back, I'll, 
I'll keep out of that one because I don't want to seem unpopular. I don't want to look like an idiot. I want to keep my cool image. Hey, tell you what, the best thing to do is never have one. I never did. So you don't miss that one. I want to, I want to keep the okayness of being part of that world out there. Romans 10 verse 9 also makes it clear that salvation involves more than belief of the heart. So we believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord. We're saved. And to such as these, Jesus calls the way of true discipleship. That's what he does. He says, I know, I know it's hard, and I know what you're going through, and I know the struggles, and I know what it's going to cost you. But I'm still calling you to follow openly and publicly. Nicodemus did that eventually. He was the one who came to Jesus at night, uh, John 3 and all that sort of stuff. And ooh, one of the Jewish leaders, but in the end, he was with Joseph of Arimathea when Joseph went to ask for the body of Jesus. Came out of the woodwork to say, yeah, I belong. I belong. I'm just going to pause here before we, uh, the last part I'll, I'll say quite quickly. But One of the joys of growing older is nearly everybody in the church is younger than you. There are some, some exceptions, I won't look. Um, There is nothing that matters more than Jesus. Nothing. I've learned it the hard way at times, but nothing. There is nothing you can give up which isn't worth giving up ten times over for what you're going to gain in glory and his approval. Nothing. The trouble is when you're in the middle of it, it seems as if it's too big. And then you get towards the latter part of your life and you think, what an idiot I've been. Eternity. I was going to say eternity is a long time. <laughs> Actually, don't believe eternity is time at all, but it won't go down that road now. Eternity just is. And this little life we live now is here. Let's move on to the fearful. If you're in that category this morning, I just plead with you. Get off the fence, get out from behind the bush you're hiding behind and start standing for what is true or what is real or what is good and what can never be taken away from you. Real believers, John then uses the words of Jesus to introduce the third response. Real believers, real belief. He makes it clear, that Jesus makes it clear that to believe in him is to believe in God the Father. Those who look to him really see God. Jesus offers to such the, the way of light so that they can walk in the light. He says, don't stay in the darkness when you can bask in the light. I am light. Jesus is the light of the world. Real believers make that choice and they will walk throughout this life, however hard it may be, and it will be hard. In light, they'll have no fear because darkness won't be part of their deal. They won't be hiding with shame because of what they've done, what they're involved in, and their hypocrisy. They'll be walking, walking in freedom of conscience, knowing God's forgiveness and living for eternal purposes. You know, it's... it's it's a far better than fair exchange, don't you think? What God has done for me can never be taken away from me. We're called to let our light shine, to share the good news, to live God's way, to believe his word, 
And the passage finishes with Jesus saying that at that time, he wasn't judging those who were holding back in fear. Not at that time. He said there'll be a judgment, and Jesus' own words will condemn them if they fail to come out from behind their self-centered fear. Eternal life centers in the words of God and the commands of Jesus because Jesus is the word of God. Just to finish, in, in the chapters that follow, you see Jesus preparing his disciples for his death. Uh, and he promises the Holy Spirit's outpouring and he, he prays to the Father. It's, it's very moving. But these few verses are like this pause between all that's been happening and what Jesus is about to teach his disciples. About, and, he, and in that pause, John just says, look at how people have been responding. To those who will not see, I pray, with all my heart I pray, that God will bring such a shaking of their lives that a desire for truth may emerge. To those who want to stay on the edge, I simply say this, you can't. You can't. There's too much at stake, if nothing else is at stake. There is the risk of spending many, many years in desperate regret. And to those who believe, I just say this, walk in the light of every word of God and every promise of God. It's worth it, it's worth it, it's worth it, it's worth it. 95 times over, it's worth it. And yes to 102. Where are you in all that? What's your response to Jesus? Let me pray. Father, thank you that you have given us everything in Jesus. I thank you that the whole of creation was made through him and the whole of creation will one day be laid at his feet. And I thank you in this time in between you give us the opportunity to serve you and to love you and to sing your praises and to tell others of your love. And yeah, Lord, we know the cost can be great, but give us the wisdom to see that what we might have to give up is tiny compared to what we gain. In Jesus' name, amen.